The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Good morning, everybody. We're thrilled today to have Joanna Lewis and Alex Wong with us to, to discuss the joint announcement that President Obama and President Xi made now almost two weeks ago. Um, you know, obviously, it was, it was historic. So it's terrific. We've got two of America's out leading experts on environment and climate change. I want to thank both of them for joining us. They are, in addition to the biographies that you have, they are both members of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. So we're thrilled you can fulfill the, 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 the design of this program and be able to educate the public and our members about this announcement. I also want to thank the Star Foundation for providing the funding for it. But Joanna will speak first for about five minutes, seven minutes. Alex will speak, and then we'll start asking some questions. But thanks so much for being with us, Joanna. Kick it off. Great. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, and good morning, everyone, or depending where you are. Uh, I wanted to kick off today um, putting the targets uh, within that we heard within the context of the joint U.S.-China climate change announcement in a bit of context and uh, talk a bit about uh, the ambition that uh, I think we see uh, coming out of these targets. Uh, so just to review what they actually were, um, well, there are many elements to these announcements. Most of the attention has been given to the actual uh, economy-wide targets which were put forth. Uh, China announced that it intends to achieve the peaking of CO2 emissions around 2030 and to make its best efforts to peak earlier than that year. Uh, and that it also intends to increase the share of non-fossil fuels in primary energy consumption to around 20% by 2030. Uh, and then, of course, the United States um, said that it intends to achieve an economy-wide target of reducing its emissions by 26 to 28% below 2005 levels uh, by 2025. So there's been a lot of reaction to these uh, numbers, um, everything from this climate deal being a game changer to being um, maybe just business as usual and, and nothing new. And of course, a lot of expectations for whether or not this could actually uh, be pivotal in influencing the international climate negotiations, uh, the next meeting of which will be taking place um, the next week uh, in Lima. I think that, from my perspective, the targets really are uh, significant and they're meaningful, but of course several questions do remain um, regarding their uh, ambition and implementation. Uh, I think it's quite notable that this is the first time China has pledged an emissions peak as opposed to an intensity-based target. Uh, China had previously announced several uh, carbon intensity targets in which carbon uh, their carbon target was indexed to economic growth. Um, so it's really new here that China's pledging a peak, which does uh, translate into a, an absolute target. Uh, what we don't know, however, is at what level that peak will occur. Uh, and, of course, the actual uh, level of the peak in terms of what, what the total amount of carbon that's released into the atmosphere uh, between now and 2030, as well as the, the shape of the peak, will be important for total climate burden. Uh, I think the non-fossil target is an important piece of this um, because it shows how they're going to 
uh, move towards reaching an emissions peak. It will, of course, require continued commitment to non-fossil energy deployment. Uh, China is, of course, already the world leader in most renewable energy technologies and investment, but um, even though we've seen rapid growth rates in the last few years, it's not going to be easy for them to maintain those rates going forward. Uh, and then, of course, these targets will need to be backed up by domestic policies, both in China and the United States. I think in China we already see uh, pretty clearly the outlines of how this is likely to be uh, carried out. In terms of the level of ambition um, of the actual peak year that was put forward of 2030, um, when you review the studies that have been coming out of both China and the United States that have been modeling um, what China's emissions trajectory is likely to look like over the coming decades uh, and various scenarios that could get them towards a lower, uh, a more ambitious uh, trajectory and an actual peak year, you see that um, most of the reference scenarios, um, the sort of business as usual, if you will, current policy scenarios, um, showed that China's emissions were likely to not peak uh, without uh, additional efforts until at least 2040, if not after 2040. Uh, several studies coming out of China and the United States um, by the Energy Research Institute, by MIT, by Tsinghua, uh, and by Lawrence Berkeley Lab have shown scenarios whereby uh, China's emissions could peak in the 2030 time period, possibly as early as 2025, um, but these all require pretty ambitious transitions uh, to low-carbon energy sources and uh, dramatic energy efficiency improvements, and they, of course, all require a substantial decrease in the amount of coal used, and, of course, most of the studies are showing that in order to achieve an emissions peak by 2030, you do need to cap coal use by about 2020 uh, because there'll be a, a lag uh, between when you sort of start to level off coal use and when that would actually translate into an emissions reduction. Um, I think it's important to note that we see that China's already in the start of this low-carbon transition. China did install more non-fossil electric capacity last year for the first time than it did fossil capacity. Um, but even with the dramatic increases we've seen in wind and solar and even nuclear, um, there are going to be some real barriers going forward. And so I think it's it's safe to say that while this is going to be feasible and there are many um, policies on the books which are going to uh, ensure that the deployment of these technologies continue, it's not going to be easy. Uh, and when there are real challenges related to curtailment uh, and continued expansion uh, of that resource related to transmission, uh, with solar we see a similar challenge to uh, particularly increasing the use of distributed solar energy. So I'll end by just saying that I think that the announcement of a peak year really does fall into the ambitious range of projections um, and that it will be difficult to achieve this, um, but extremely positive uh, and have many co-benefits aside from the climate challenge, uh, particularly related to local air, local air pollution, uh, which we can talk more about. Um, and finally, I think that the U.S. and China announcing targets this early is extremely constructive um, because of the timing of the climate negotiations coming in the, in the next few months and hopefully will motivate uh, other nations to follow suit um, in the coming months. So I'll stop there and then turn it over to uh, Alex. Great. Uh, thanks a lot, Joanna, and thanks to people organizing this. Um, <clears throat> good morning. Uh, so I just wanted to add uh, a few thoughts um, in addition to what Joanna has said. Uh, my colleagues and I at UCLA have called the uh, announcement a monumental one. And I want to clarify what we mean by that. I think, in short, uh, we think the announcement extends um, the existing commitments in each country, and it really destabilizes the politics of, of climate change in a way that is very positive. I think, is it enough to solve the climate uh, change problem? Almost certainly not, but this is a major uh, step forward. Uh, so just a few points. Um, in addition to the main targets that Joanna 
mentioned, there have already been a few follow-on announcements. So uh, President Obama, a few days after this joint announcement, announced um, a uh, contribution of $3 billion to the Green Climate Fund, which is a fund that helps the poorest countries deal with the effects of climate change. And then China also announced a... Uh, um, an energy plan that uh, that talked about uh, a coal consumption cap in 2020 and uh, targets for reducing the share of, of coal in the uh, total energy mix. Um, so those are all important follow-on uh, announcements. And um, I, w- I want to make a few comments on uh, the discussions about the ambition of the targets as well as uh, the, a very, the very important issue of implementation of the targets. So. Uh, on the uh, ambition of the targets, so Mitch McConnell has already famously said that the, the joint announcement means that China won't have to do anything for 16 years, which is, which is, you know, this is obviously uh, uh, sort of a, you know, political posturing on the U.S. side and, and really um, just demonstrably a, a false assertion. So, um, you know, just in terms of what uh, China has to do on uh, increasing uh, renewable energy. So tremendous investment in renewable energy will be required. So Bloomberg Energy has estimated the the price tag at about two trillion dollars to meet the non-fossil target. China would have to install the clean energy equivalent of Spain's entire generating capacity each year until 2030, and the total amount almost equals the non-fossil fuel energy of the entire U.S. generating capacity today. and uh, this is also uh, ignores the fact that China has already been engaged in a very substantial effort uh, to change the energy mix and improve the overall energy and carbon efficiency of the economy. Uh, so China already has the largest renewable energy capacity in the world, accounting for about 24% of the, the global total. Um, and uh, one thing that people might not be aware of is that China's total renewable Energy capacity right now exceeds the total installed capacity, uh, you know, all energy capacity in Japan, and it's doubled the total power capacity in Germany. So quite quite a lot has been going on in renewable energy at a scale that uh, not everyone may may realize. Um, but uh, is, is this enough to to uh, meet the the goal of keeping us from uh, the, the sort of two degree target that's been the, the focus of international? Uh, discussions and, and the short answer is, is almost certainly no. Both countries are going to need to to do more. The U.S. pledge uh, is a very important pledge and beyond what 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 has um, uh, been made before, but it, it's still below. Uh, uh, there, there are discussions about how 25 to 40 percent below 1990 levels of emissions is necessary from developed countries. The U.S. pledge only equals about 12 to 14 uh, percent below 1990. Uh, levels, uh, and it's less ambitious than the EU target, which was uh, a 40% reduction from 1990 levels. And then on the implementa- implementation point, uh, you know, this is another uh, hot button issue, and um, uh, you know, I, th- I think that uh, you know, traditionally one of the, the critiques of China has been that uh, there, there are lots of uh, environmental laws on the books, but that implementation uh, has been Poor, and that uh, this has been attributed to local protectionism and weak enforcement capacity, among other things. Uh, data quality has also been uh, a problem that's, uh, that's been cited. And so, 
Um, the question that's been raised is, well, why do we think that these targets will actually be implemented in practice, you know, regardless of the discussion of whether the targets themselves are actually ambitious enough? Even if they are ambitious enough, will they actually be implemented? So I think there's some, some background that uh, at least people who don't follow the environment on a day-to-day basis might not be aware of is that uh, the, the announcements that have come out here have been part of a, a broader uh, effort that's been going on um, fairly vigorously for at least the, the last decade. Uh, it's part of a broader uh, effort at uh, economic transformation in the country, so moving away from heavy industry and towards um, cleaner, more efficient forms of economic growth. And uh, I can talk more about the details of that in the Q&A, but I think underlying it is, is concerns about, uh, about sustaining economic growth in the future, uh, issues of social stability. There have been a lot of protests that have risen all around the country uh, due to pollution. And uh, this has been, uh, in, the pressure for this has been intensified uh, in the last few years with the, the high profile given to air pollution problems. So I, I think the, the biggest hope that we, that I have for uh, implementation is the fact that uh, you know, there's been a lot of concern about the ability of sort of vested interests, the state-owned enterprises, and other interests to block environmental protection. But these moves towards economic transformation are actually creating, in a sense, new vested interests that have economic and other stakes in the new economy, in clean energy. Uh, Bloomberg Energy has talked about how uh, there are vast riches to be made in this new energy economy. And I think, um, in part, as these other vested interests develop for the clean energy economy, I think there, there will be a lot of pressure towards uh, implementation of, of the new economy. And so um, with that, I'll, I'll stop there and happy to, to talk about the details of that uh, in the Q&A. Terrific introductions. Mike, let's step back for a second and ask the question, is this a breakthrough in terms of the U.S.-China relationship? We always talk about kind of areas where the United States and China must confront world threats jointly, and that this announcement is kind of the bright, shining example of what the United States and China need to do together to kind of confront the threats to this world. Is this kind of going to be the path for other areas? I'm happy to to start uh, on that. I mean, I think that it's been really interesting to see how the the climate and energy issue has been pretty substantially elevated in the context of the bilateral relationship over the last five or six years. Um, And I think that, you know, for people who were working in the climate space um, for the last decade or so, it it was sort of surprising to think that you could come up with an agreement like this, that you could, um, you know, really two countries that just seem to be in such different positions on this issue could come into um, so close in alignment. Uh, I think that this really has to do with the fact that uh, when you look at the bilateral relationship and the broad set of strategic issues um, across which the presidents were discussing and um, their teams were discussing uh, over the last year or so, uh, you know, climate change really has arisen um, out of uh, all of these other issues as the one where we do really have uh, far more in common um, than uh, than not, uh, and really an area where, while you know, there's still many sort of fundamental 
uh, disagreements, um, I think ultimately the goals uh, of what we both want to achieve are similar. I think it's very hard to say that that's true uh, on more of these, uh, you know, much more controversial issues, whether it's Taiwan or North Korea or South China Sea. Um, and so I don't think that, you know, I think climate change would maybe have not risen to the forefront of the bilateral relationship had there not been um, sort of a shortage of other areas where um, there was this sort of agreement. Um, and so I think that also it's it's quite notable how the relationship has evolved um, just over the, the terms of the Obama administration, for example. Uh, back in 2009, when uh, several new bilateral agreements were announced uh, on energy and climate change, um, you know, while the goal of those agreements was to really start to scale up cooperation in this area, uh, they were far less ambitious in terms of scope um, than what's been able to achieve since then. Uh, I think those agreements set the seeds of uh, what became a you know much more uh, deep and um, consistent uh, set of exchanges uh, between the two countries, um, whether it's the, the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center. Uh, or the high-level uh, climate change working group, uh, which was formed uh, just uh, last year. I think this has really allowed for a much more constant uh, dialogue back and forth and has allowed for a lot of trust to be um, built between the two countries. I don't think that was there uh, a few years ago, and so it did allow for an agreement like this um, to emerge. Alex? Yeah, and I think, you know, the... the, the the environment issue has risen to the top of the, the relationship. Uh, so even starting a few years back, and, and uh, back around the time of Copenhagen, there was uh, a, a lot of people remember that how it was interesting that the, that the environmental and the climate issue had had risen in priority. Uh, at the time, I think uh, a lot of people were wondering whether uh, the engagements that were being announced at the time would really solidify into something more. Substantial. Uh, there's a sense maybe these are, you know, a lot of the partnerships and the projects, uh, collaborative projects were uh, sort of meant for the announcements, but would they be sustained? And I think uh, the announcement that's just happened uh, is a good sign in that it's, it's uh, sustained um, the commitment to a number of the collaborations. I, I think it uh, adds force to the, a lot of the other things that are even outside of the announcement. Here in California, there's a tremendous amount of uh, collaboration between Cal EPA and CARB here uh, with the Chinese. Uh, Mayor Garcetti here in Los Angeles just announced that he wants to do a, a meeting, uh, city-to-city meetings uh, that follow on to the U.S.-China announcement. So I think I think this creates a lot of momentum that's triggering a lot of other things that really are, are not even necessarily uh, making the headlines, which is a very positive thing. Yeah, I guess, Mike, in what I, it led me to kind of think about what does this mean for cooperation? We're seeing in, terror, in anti-terrorism efforts, in anti-piracy efforts, in a free trade agreement even. Because even though the interest, there, there is some complementarity, there are is some difference between the U.S. and China in terms of what we want to do on climate change and on the environment. And that we were, there's some compromise involved and is this some kind of pathway forward. Next question is really for, for Alex mostly. Why why is this a joint announcement, not an agreement? Oh well, I, you know, it, it's, it's even though the president called it, it an agreement in his news conference. Right? Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there's uh, there was some debate over you know is, is this an agreement? Does this really bind the countries to anything? So it's clearly not uh, a, a, some sort of binding agreement between the countries. It's the announcement of the domestic uh, intentions on both sides. Uh, and then the follow-on question to that is: Does it have? Does that mean it, it doesn't have weight? You know, some people have, in, the, in the sort of commentary that's followed, they're not saying 
say, well, you know, it wasn't binding, and you know, it doesn't really mean it. But the, the fact that it's uh, you know, such a high-level announcement, such a public announcement, uh, has many follow-on effects. And, you know, this, frankly, this will relate to our discussion of the international agreement, too. I think for those who think that the international agreement is going to be some legally binding, uh, enforceable agreement, I, I think that vision is really the, the wrong one. Right now, the place that we're going to see the most progress is countries seeing that it's in their own best interest to move forward on this and that uh, it's a positive thing for, for them domestically. And I think that's what the announcement reflects, is that both countries feel comfortable that at least a certain portion of the, the country sees that it's very positive and important to move forward, and so they've been willing to announce it. So what will occur going forward, it won't be some treaty which is going to require the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate, but will just be kind of executive branch commitments. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think on the the um, uh, U.S. side, you know, they've uh, been been careful. You know, there's obviously a, a problem if if they need to go to get congressional approval that uh, that creates. Problems and it's not likely to, to happen given the political situation uh, now. So uh, the U.S. has uh, authority under the Clean Air Act. Um, states can move uh, in various ways to press for efficiency and renewable energy and, and these types of things. And so uh, a lot of the heavy lifting initially will need to be uh, done through these types of things that don't need to go through Congress. Is new technology figured into to these these goals? Are there assumptions that are being made about breakthroughs in technology which are going to allow emissions to be reduced, whether it's how coal is used, whether it's breakthroughs in the use of renewables, whether it's, you know, and what do you, how do, should we be thinking about kind of a, a historic breakthrough like fusion energy? Uh, well, I'm happy to start on that. I mean, I, I think that there aren't uh, explicit uh, assumptions about, you know, the need for breakthroughs in meeting these targets. I don't think any country would have put forward um, an announcement like this if they didn't think it was already feasible with existing technology. Uh, that said, there are, if you read um, the joint announcement closely, there are several other agreements um, in addition to the targets which focus specifically on technology deployment as well as on, on non-CO2 greenhouse gases, all of which will help um, get you to the targets that were announced. Um, I think the two most important ones um, in response to your question are uh, the expansion and continuation of the Clean Energy Research Center, uh, which looks at uh, building efficiency technologies, advanced coal technologies, and vehicle technologies, all of which will be extremely important. Um, to continuing the use of uh, or to continuing decarbonization path, uh, as well as the new energy water nexus track, which is going to be extremely important, particularly um, as uh, China looks to expand uh, some technologies uh, that may be low carbon but require a large amount of water. Um, I think also the announcement on uh, the establishment of a, a major new carbon storage project, which will be based in China. Uh, and to create an international public-private consortium um, set up by the U.S. and China 
to look at a large-scale carbon capture and utilization project um, in combination with an enhanced water recovery project. You know, CCES or CCUS has sort of been the the big question mark um, about whether you can bring this to commercialized scale and deploy it, uh, particularly in a country like China, where it could certainly be used, um, but has till now been cost-effective and um, cost-ineffective, and uh, as well as many other obstacles. So I think these are all sort of part of um, the, the sort of R&D trajectory. But I, I think there have been a, several modeling studies done, uh, even you know, by many of the leading research institutions in China, that show that you could meet. For example, the 20% non-fossil energy target uh, by 2030 with existing uh, renewable and low-carbon technologies. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Joanna on that. I mean, the, the, the targets, you know, they wouldn't, uh, they don't in, incorporate sort of the types of breakthroughs I think you're talking about. But I think uh, from the legal perspective, you know, the, the longer-term signals are very important to the investment uh, in, in these types in the research and and. Uh, development of these types of uh, technologies. And uh, in the U.S. in the past, what's hampered uh, development of, of renewables and efficiencies, that type of thing, is uh, the sort of intermittency of the signals towards those things. You know, uh, in, in one year that there, there will be support uh, in policies and subsidies and that sort of thing, and then uh, they, they might go away. And so I think this, this helps that, and it reduces the risk in, Investing and, and placing uh, bets on developing those technologies, and so um, and, you know it's, it's helpful in that direction. When I first saw the announcement and then I've seen the follow-up announcement, it, I, I wondered that does the Chinese leadership have have in mind you know, a carbon tax or more kind of, in other words, putting in place. Um, financial policies which will cause, I guess what Alex just referred to as a redirection of investment. Because these are, especially in, in you know, the, the subsequent announcement I think the Chinese made in their energy development strategy action plan, which is to cap coal consumption at 2000, in 2020, which is significant earlier than what, significantly earlier than what we'd heard before. Yeah, I think uh, there have been discussions about uh, a carbon tax. Um, they haven't uh, moved as quickly as, as most people would, would like. Uh, you know, some people have said that there's, there's an element of uh, bureaucratic infighting, that uh, a carbon tax would uh, accrue more power to the, the finance ministry, whereas uh, cap and trade and other things sort of are within the bailiwick of NDRC. And so there, there have been some uh, disputes in that respect. But I, th I think a financial instrument is really... Uh, would be really important towards implementation. I think the current main strategy for implementation here is a very, uh, you know, the typical top-down targets oriented. You, know, you, you set targets, you, you distribute the targets to lower levels, and uh, then you essentially try to enforce and try to monitor. And uh, as we've seen in any situation where you use that strategy of kind of hard targets, uh, you get all the people at the bottom trying to evade the targets in some way. And, and so it's very difficult uh, after in a country the size of China to, to sort of try to enforce that. So uh, it, there's a need for uh, market signals and pricing uh, uh, signals to change behavior. Uh, you know, I was listening to a presentation the other day where uh, they framed it, I think, in a very useful way, a coal, you know, a coal plant that's dealing with, pressure from targets and, and laws to, to reduce coal consumption, but faced with 
a very cheap coal supply, uh, you know, that, that's a, a difficult uh, bargain for, for a plan. And there, there's too, uh, plenty of temptation to try to evade the, the laws, especially when uh, monitoring is not sufficient. So, so I think something like a carbon tax and other use of market instruments is essential for implementation. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, as, you know, we've seen China has launched seven pilot cap-and-trade programs and has announced the intention of moving to a national program uh, as early as 2016. Um, but, of course, the way that China's electricity markets are set up is that, you know, the, the carbon prices, which are now um, the, being levied on some uh, of the large emitters in these uh, pilot provinces, um, you know, they aren't able to pass through the cost uh, associated with the carbon regulation because of the way prices are regulated. Uh, this has actually uh, been addressed by setting up some of these programs uh, with essentially a sort of double counting of uh, emissions allowances where you're sort of placing a, uh, a cap on the actual producers of the electricity as well as on the end users so that you can't sh pass through that price signal, but you can sort of enforce it from a top-down way on uh, both the suppliers and the end users. This is, of course, not... Uh, really a market signal. This is sort of a, you know, created market. And so I think to really, um, to to push a, a true market signal through, you're going to have to see this in a much broader context of electricity sector reform. Uh, and I think this is certainly on the agenda for the coming years, but uh, won't be quick or easy. Uh, I think the other piece of this, um, which would be worth watching, is the, the China's announced a pretty uh, massive uh, reform in the broad science and technology policy, including uh, research and development funding, um, including funding for energy technologies. Um, the high-tech research program, some of the major programs are, um, you know, have been highlighted as not being sort of spent as effectively as they might be, and so there's some real thinking about how to restructure those programs, and I think that could have uh, some, some positive implications for how that gets directed, uh, particularly towards some of these uh, new energy sector technologies. My last question, and then I'd like to open it up to the participants on the call. We spent a lot of time in, the, in our Track 2 energy discussions with the Chinese talking about coal consumption. And in a recent meeting, you know, we talked about when coal consumption would naturally peak, and the, the Citibank analyst who looks at this talked about 2025, and the consensus within the group was that was way too early, that it would not naturally peak actually substantially later than that. There was no one who thought that 2020 was realistic. So how did they get there? How did they peak coal consumption by 2020? Good question. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I think it's a... You know the the way that they're trying to do it is uh, you know they're they're setting um, these these coal targets uh, the, the the sort of mechanism of trying to implement it is is setting um, coal caps uh, and I think uh, part of the way they get there is if they actually can uh, get this uh, e the overall economic transformation um, policy to actually work you sort of uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of effort to shut down a lot of the, the smaller, inefficient plants that are, are consuming a lot of energy. Um, and if they can actually shift to um, companies that are not uh, using energy as intensively, I think that's 
part of the strategy. But I think the crux of your question is a good one. It, it's a it's a challenge. I mean, there's a lot of um, vested interests within the country that um, that uh, make their money on coal, and so it's it's been the same challenge in the U.S. where you have very powerful financial interests who rely on on coal. So how do you you, you crack that nut? I think uh, and part of the bargain here is trying to create essentially other carrots so that you, you uh, create other opportunities uh, to, to make money. Like in uh, in the U.S., natural gas and the profitability of natural gas and the prices of, of natural gas coming down really shifted the equation and, and uh, have, has uh, damaged the ability of the coal uh, lobby to, to block policies. And so um, if something like that can happen in China, I think that's, uh, that's one of the main pathways forward. Well, I think that um, those numbers actually were not totally out of range with what we've seen from some of the more aggressive studies by these research groups, both in China and the United States. Uh, you know, there were uh, you know several studies showing that you could actually see um, through a variety of factors. I mean, essentially technology advancement, economic restructuring and increased adoption of many of these policies to encourage uh, you know, further use of renewable energy and other low-carbon sources that you would actually start to see a plateau in energy demand naturally. Um, and so I think you know, pushing that up a bit um, and coal sort of being directly linked to that as the primary energy source uh, is not out of the realm of, of, you know, of reality. I think it's, again, it's not easy and it's going to require, um, you know, pretty aggressive implementation of these types of targets, which Alex discussed. Uh, I think the real challenge is going to be, um, you know, making sure that there's enough national coverage to make sure that this happens sort of economy-wide as opposed to just in the eastern part of the country and not in the west. We've, of course, already seen a fair amount of um, implementation of these air quality plans that have, you know, in an attempt to clean up air in some of the eastern coastal cities, you end up sort of moving some of the uh, heavy industrial capacity or coal power plants inland. Um, and, of course, the, if you're moving towards an actual national cap, um, you need to have much more comprehensive coverage, and I think that's where the challenge is really going to lie uh, for the Chinese government. Operator, if we can open the, the questions to our, our audience. Okay, thank you. At this time, we will open the floor for questions. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star key followed by the one key on your touchtone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order in which they are received. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the questioning queue, just press star 2. Again, to ask a question, please press star 1. And we have our first question from Karen Christensen. Hi, um, Karen Christensen from Berkshire Publishing. I wonder, I, I'm really interested in this um, question of what this tells us about U.S.-China relations and China's relationship with other countries. Is this agreement a sign that some of the debate between developing countries and developed countries over cumulative emissions is something that we're going to be able to put behind us or look at in a fresh way when we come to the, you know, the, the, the international talks? Uh, I'm happy to start with that. Uh, I think, you know, Karen, unfortunately, no. I, I don't think that this is going to be the end of that discussion. Uh, I'll be in Lima uh, starting next week, and so I'm actually very interested to see uh, whether the U.S.-China announcement has a reverberation in the context of the climate negotiations. But, no, I don't think this sort of fundamentally changes uh, the discussion of common uh, but differentiated responsibilities. 
um, which is, is what you're alluding to. I think yeah. that, you know, China's now in a position where um, it's very, very clearly the largest emitter on an annual basis, you know, now sort of far exceeding U.S. emissions. Um, there is, you know, some interesting projections of when China may actually surpass the, the United States uh, emissions on a cumulative basis, so on a, you know, historic basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that's, you know, still probably uh, at least a, a couple decades away. Um, but, you know, I think that it will be very interesting to see how China, having stood up in front of the international stage and made these these announcements, um, does influence other countries. I mean, we've already seen uh, the basic countries, uh, you know, the uh, Brazil, India, South Africa, um, sort of, you know, some have been very quiet uh, after this announcement. Some, like India, have actually been sort of vocally um, saying that this is this is not helping, and this is, you know, not not only is this not ambitious enough, it's it's not, you know, anything that they tend to follow. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this happens. But um, I think on the sidelines, at least, it should very much change the dynamics, and hopefully, it will gradually um, permeate the, the sort of the rhetoric that that tends to slow the the international negotiation processes progress. Yeah, and and in you know in the joint announcement, it was very clearly you know I think it was item two, you know, very was very careful to put in the language about common but differentiated responsibilities. So I think the, what's going on with with China is is been part of a trend that there's been a lot of pressure for China to to step up just by virtue of its size and its emissions. So I mean it's it's sort of amazing to think that you know in 2007 around it just in the run up to Copenhagen, it was 2007 where the U.S. and China emissions were were equal. You know that was when China had just begun to pass the U.S. and now uh, China's emissions uh, you know, far exceed uh, the U.S. emissions uh, on a per capita basis. Uh, there was news that uh, Chinese per capita emissions have exceeded uh, European per capita emissions, and uh, as Joanna mentioned, on the cumulative side, you know China is. Starting the approach um, with the U.S. on the, the cumulative side, so there, there's been, uh, you know, for a long time the pressure has been, you know, China is not like all the other developing countries, and, and you know they've they've uh, clearly recognized that and uh, had to step up. But in terms of the debate over fairness and how the uh, responsibilities are allocated, that will uh, surely continue to be a very hot button issue in negotiations. Chinese per capita emissions have not begun to approach U.S. per capita emissions. No, U.S. is still far, far in excess. The U.S. is certainly the world leader on per capita emissions. Next question, operator. Here again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one. What are the so? Let me ask then. What are the assumptions with respect to shale gas? Um, in China, are they? Because uh, obviously, you're getting a, a much lower emission from shale gas, which potentially could replace coal. What assumptions have the Chinese made in terms of using that transition to lower their their emissions? Um, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sir. Yeah, no, go ahead, John. Uh, I was just going to say, I think that, um, I mean, China had put forth very aggressive targets to expand the use of uh, non-conventional gas, um, but I think we've seen uh, many, sort of since those targets were announced, uh, many within the government and within the sort of large oil and gas companies have come forward saying that they think they're probably not going to be able to be met. 
Um, and so there's been a real slowing of development. I think, you know, this is for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, gas is still extremely expensive uh, in China, um, partly because coal is kept so artificially uh, low, uh, and so it's extremely hard to compete, uh, and most of the gas is still going to very sort of higher-value uses uh, as opposed to electricity generation. Very little natural gas is used for electricity at this point. Um, and so I think when you look at the non-fossil target, for example, that doesn't include gas. Um, it does include nuclear and large hydro, um, which are included in the non-fossil category. Uh, and the assumptions that you see about the role gas will play in the future really varies um, quite a bit, just sort of depending on the studies you look at. Uh, MIT and Tsinghua, for example, have put, toward, uh, put forth a study um, that showed a, a peak very similar to the announcement from the Chinese government of 2030. Uh, peak, and uh, you see in those scenarios natural gas uh, increasing pretty substantially in share, but, you know, sort of leveling off um, around, uh, you know, around 2030. And so, you know, I think it, it will certainly um, play a role. They're hoping that it, they'll be able to scale up gas use uh, within the next couple of decades, but it's not going to be immediate, and they're starting at such a low base, it's, it's not going to be a large wedge, if you will, uh, in the near term. I guess the question is that Ten years ago, if you asked Americans about what the proportion of, of uh, gas would be in, in shale gas, they would, you know, and, and shale oil, they we would not have expected that to occur. So I wonder if the Chinese right. are building in a similar uh, kind of projection that the slowness, in a way, given how quickly a well would get gets used up, I you know, that peaks quite early compared to a traditional well. Um, it. You know, are they assuming that, well, this delay means that by 2025, we're going to really have a lots of, of uh, untraditional uh, energy coming into the market? And the developing shale would, uh, would, is, uh, you know, it's part of the energy plan, and it's, it's important, but, uh, you know, the, the targets, uh, as Joanna mentioned, were excessively ambitious at the outset. My, my understanding, you know, I'm not a, a gas guy, but uh, my understanding is that the technology uh, barriers to, to getting the gas out of the ground are, are more challenging in, in China than in the U.S. Yeah, there's technology, there's geography, and then there's there's kind of the legal structure that China uses does not encourage. But I think you do see, I mean, with the Russian gas pipeline deals, and, you know, there's really a huge push to try to bring in conventional gas, uh, and you're going to see that uh, continue to accelerate in the coming years. I just wonder that the Chinese, you know, the Chinese. I think certainly in the dialogues we've had with them, there's an understanding that they also need a legal structure which encourages those who developed kind of the unconventional energy sources in the United States to be able to do it in, in China, and that if that occurs, that will uh, allow for a rapid build-up in that. Yeah, I remember a big issue coming out of our dialogue was um, actually just the competitiveness of the market, um, because right now you have such a handful of factors that sort of allow this, the so-called shale gas boom to occur, uh, included the entry of a lot of small and medium companies into the sector, um, which, you know, created competition and uh, allowed for this to be done in, in a more economic way. Operator, other questions, or should we continue our discussion? Uh, we have a follow-up question from Karen Christensen. Yes, I did have another question. Um, I wonder about individual car ownership. Um, I've, when I talk to people in China, that seems to be quite touchy. As soon as you know, one one talks about that, you know, that that it, 
that, that the increase in car ownership is not being desirable in terms of climate change. People that, well, you know, you Americans, you've had cars, you know, you all have lots of cars. So where does that factor into the, you know, the plans that China has? And how do, how do you think people are, the, the public in China will feel about any kind of infringement of what they see as their, um, you know, individual rights? Well, it seems like it, it would be pretty difficult to, uh, you, know, you know, I think car ownership is going to keep increasing um, very rapidly. And so I, I think the amount of pollution that transportation contributes will depend on uh, a lot of things, uh, including regulation. There's been, uh, you know, a lot of attention to you know, the, the emission standards and the fuel quality standards. And uh, for a long time, the, the barrier was on the fuel quality side in particular, so uh, essentially, uh, fuel quality is essentially self-regulated by the by the industry, and there was an unwillingness to increase the standards in a way that would uh, allow the emission standards to, to be as effective as, as they could be. And um, because of the air pollution pressures, there's been breakthroughs on that, and so we'll, we'll have to wait to see how well that's implemented. But um, you know, there's also issues with uh, uh, sort of turnover of you know, as, as you change standards, the newer cars will be cleaner, but if a lot of the old cars still remain on the road, uh, that will um, still produce a lot of uh, pollution. Uh, you know, there's a lot of good work starting to be done in L.A. and in the, in, in the U.S. about is within a city you can have tremendous pollution hotspots just in poorer parts of town where uh, where older vehicles uh, are, are sort of kept alive for a much longer time. And so... I imagine in China you're going to see some of the older vehicles getting sent to uh, second, third-tier cities, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, uh, so uh, how that process of, of dealing with older vehicles will also affect how much pollution they get out of these uh, these cars. Yeah, I would just add briefly that, you know, none of these sort of scenarios that, that get you to a peak in 2030 show a – uh, peak in transportation-related uh, energy use or emissions because you are going to see dramatic growth in this sector. Um, but you can still get to an overall um, peak um, if you are, you know, through a combination of electrifying at least a portion of the transportation fleet as well as, uh, you know, restructuring the economy. Um, so I don't think that, you know, anyone is expecting a sort of decrease in um, vehicle use. I mean, some of the, the studies I've seen show you know, going from around 6 million cars a year to, you know, 170 million cars a year by 2030 and even much more dramatic increase by 2050. Um, so that's all being factored in, in in thinking about these sorts of targets and projections. Thank you. In that context, how do they clean up Beijing within any reasonable time frame? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there's been an incredible amount of policy making on this. I mean, it's just unbelievable since since the initial air apocalypse in January of 2013, uh, the, the air pollution action plans and these sorts of things coming out. Uh, you know, I, I think that they're going to, you know, the, the evidence right now on the air quality does not suggest this, but I think that they will get uh, the air quality issue under control. Uh, you know, a lot of it is uh, attempt, well, you know, a lot of it is attempting to shut down move them, uh, move the, the power plants, you know, draw power uh, from places farther away. Um, that doesn't bode well for places farther west. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for example, the, 
you know, a lot of the infrastructure plans have now been justified based on air pollution grounds. So, for example, the, um, the grid companies who have been pushing for um, sort of this stronger grid, uh, high-voltage grid. Um, you know, there's a Wall Street Journal op-ed by, by uh, the head of state grid talking about the air pollution benefits. So, uh, you know, they're trying to uh, get power production further uh, west. And there are a lot of sort of boring technical things that you can do, sort of get rid of coal-fired boilers and, uh, you know, you'll have more stringent um, rules on uh, on older cars on the transportation sector, not allowing them to be in Beijing and Shanghai and then these eastern um, cities that are the the center of the the air pollution policies. But... um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of little things to, to be done, and I, I, I think those things um, can be done. I think on the air pollution side, we have a much clearer idea of how to get things done. Um, I think the climate side will be, uh, you know, have, presents many more uncertainties and technical challenges. Joanne, anything on, on that question? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that um, while it's certainly it's not an easy um, solution, the you know the good news, honestly, is that uh, addressing air pollution has a lot of synergies with a lot of the policies that the government would like to see go forward anyway. Um, and so, not only is it sort of going to be necessary for them to take this very seriously to address the broader social stability issues, um, I think there's just huge co-benefits for addressing air pollution to um, sort of forcing. Uh, the broader industrial restructuring, I mean, a lot of the uh, industrial facilities which are responsible for a lot of this pollution um, are part of overheated sectors which the government would like to, to sort of, you know, put forth consolidation on and, and to control a bit more tightly. Um, and, and, and again, you know, with increasing vehicles uh, use, there's a, a need to really step up the regulation uh, on tailpipe emissions uh, as well as on fuel. So I think that this this all goes together, and it, and, and it certainly can help the climate problem. I think what we do need to be careful of are some air pollution fixes, which um, could have adverse Im- implications for the climate problem, things like uh, using coal to make liquid fuels, um, which you could do sort of away from the urban areas and have a cleaner burning uh, coal-based gas fuel um, that you can burn in vehicles. But, of course, uh, making these liquid fuels from coal have a huge um, uh, climate uh, penalty in terms of the amount of CO2 which would be emitted through that conversion process, which is extremely energy intensive. Yeah, I agree. On that, the coal to gas is really an important area to, to watch because it's one of the big areas where uh, air pollution efforts do not dovetail well with uh, climate change. And there's been a lot of back and forth about that. And it seems like more, most recently there's been a, a pulling back from some of the, the plans, but um, but uh, that remains to be seen exactly how that will play out. Similarly, moving, you know, polluting factories and power plants away from Beijing cleans up the air around Beijing, but that's not an iota for for uh, reducing national emissions. Right, and, and you know, in in the U.S., there was a, you know the, under the Clean Air Act, there's a policy of called uh, prevention of significant deterioration. So there there was a policy to prevent the areas that were already clean from sort of being recipients of, of dirty uh, facilities. Uh, in China, there's not, not that sort of notion right now. So the, the cleaner areas in the West are, are viewed as, 
sinks, you know, available sinks for, for pollution. I think that's still a, um, a prominent uh, view in the environmental regulatory community. So, um, you know, so that, that doesn't bode well for the, the um, uh, less developed and still, still uh, potentially less polluted areas. How much does the 12 five-year plan figure into their calculation in terms of reducing emissions as China moves away from this investment-led growth to, to, to a growth that's obviously consistent with the 12 five-year plan and is more service sector, which is less polluting? Does it, uh, is there an assumption in these numbers that that transition, which right now is a lot of, some would argue, is not going well, is going to actually speed up and it's going to occur? Yeah, so, you know, that, that's been a big, uh, you know, the, the five-year plan targets have been, uh, you know, an important part of, uh, you know, both pollution reduction and um, the, the climate strategy. And, you know, there, there have been uh, success stories here, uh, you know, the, on the energy efficiency front with the uh, uh, sort of retrofitting, you know, the, the, the top 1,000 enterprises programs, you know, top 1,000 energy using uh, enterprises and, and, and now it's the top 10,000 program. Uh, they, they've had success in sort of getting these companies to retrofit and become more um, efficient. Um, but there's also you know, plenty of instances where um, uh, there's a lot of leakage in the, in the uh, meeting of these targets. I, you know, I looked uh, more closely at the pollution side reduction targets and um, you know, there are plenty of ways for uh, facilities to sort of meet targets by showing they've invested in something, uh, uh, for example, a piece of pollution control equipment. But then uh, if the targets aren't aimed at ensuring that the pollution equipment uh, runs and is operated, then um, you don't actually achieve your goal, right? So you, you've, you've incentivized the investment in flue gas desulfurization or something like that, but uh, you haven't achieved your goal of reducing uh, pollution. <clears throat> so that will be a continuing challenge with the, the five-year plan. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, I've actually, I actually think if you look at the initial numbers which are coming out in terms of progress towards achieving the 12 five-year plan targets both for energy intensity and for carbon intensity, um, so far it actually looks like the, you know, the National Bureau of Statistics has announced that um, you know, for example, in, in the first nine months of 2014, the energy uh, intensity ratio declined 4.6%, and they only needed to do 3.9%. Um, so it looks like they are sort of close to on track um, for, you know, due both to economic slowdown, uh, which we've seen, as well as, um, you know, I think this sort of increase in tertiary industry and the signs of at least some of this industrial restructuring going forward. Uh, and this is translating into... Uh, the carbon intensity goal as well. So I think, you know, it actually looks like these, whether or not you sort of see the forcing effects of these targets um, at the local level, uh, and there's, of course, always some question about sort of how these things are calculated, um, I think at least it looks like they are sort of moving things in the right direction. Interesting. Uh, and I also think, you know, you know I've, I've raised this issue of potential um, kind of goal displacement of the targets, but sometimes that can be overblown also. You know, I think on the energy side, um, there was a lot uh, uh, made of the you know, installation of wind power, for example, that w wasn't connected to the grid, and I think there, there's been improvements in the recent years 
uh, on that. You know, so you, you do have an initial flurry of construction and, and problems in implementation, but uh, I think there's been uh, some improvements in, in, you know, in after the fact. So, um, uh, so that's, a, that's a good thing. Does somebody look at the the relationship between the increase in tertiary industries to the energy intensity? Is, is there an analysis of how how that translates into you know better energy intensity? Left you, uh, yes. Left you the better uh, <laughs> for, for point of GDP. That was very inarticulate. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, there's certainly studies um, which are done regularly, um, you know, both on the Chinese side as well as by groups like uh, the China group at Lawrence Berkeley Lab, who I work with. Um, so I don't probably don't have time to go into sort of details of that, but but I'd be happy to pass those along to, to anyone interested. Other questions? Yes, we now have a question from Robert Levinson. Uh, there's been no discussion about opposition to this agreement for those who don't believe in the science that uh, is propelling this. Nor has there been any discussion about scrubbers for the coal, which would eliminate a lot of the carbon. Has any of this come up as, uh, in the opposition uh, community? Uh, are you referring to on the U.S. side or on the on the China side or on the U.S. side specifically? Yeah. I mean, those science, there's those those who do not believe in the science. Uh, they're they're hopefully a, a minority today, but there's been a lot of uh, opposition over the years to the science of uh, climate change, and then not no, not too much discussion about scrubbers for coal coal plants or other other uh, type of techno technology that that uh, that that can can afford uh, certain countries to use coal in a large percentage. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I think hopefully on the, the science denial, you know, the, one thing that was nice about the joint announcement is that very clearly you know, both countries coming forward and saying, look, we we know that the science shows that, you know, these various things are happening because of climate change. And hopefully that's uh, the sort of climate denier kind of camp is is kind of on the, uh, you, know, you know, sort of losing its uh, its steam because I, I think that that was a, a unfortunate part of the U.S. political uh, landscape, and, you, and you've seen some of the politicians retrenching, sort of saying, you know, I'm not a scientist and this sort of thing, and uh, and so hopefully that's on, that's on the the wane. And in terms of the technology side, I mean, I, th I think Joanna probably knows more about the technology, but I, th I think one of the positive things about the collaboration is that. Uh, you know things like like carbon sequestration. You know it's very expensive and and not sort of uh, proven technolo technologically yet. But one good thing about China being a sort of a low co low cost uh, place for for trying to develop these types of things still is that China is, the hope is that China could become sort of laboratory to to work these things out and they could bring their kind of low cost manufacturing prowess to, to this and to to try and see if we can uh, develop something in an affordable uh, way. Join any last words? Uh, no, I, I, I agree with what Alex said. I want to thank you both for joining us today and for being such bright, shining examples for our public intellectuals program. <laughs>
Hey, thanks, everyone. Thanks for having us.